Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Christy Porter of Vector Global Logistics, and you are listening to or watching Logistics with Purpose. And spoiler alert, we're going to have another amazing episode in store for you. So I am delighted to introduce Chris Chancy, CEO and founder of Amplio Recruiting, and Harris Amini, um, who is a in the transition to a new job at Accenture here in Atlanta. So Chris Harris, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Our pleb, my pleasure. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, so uh, first of all, we're gonna hear a little bit about your background and then we're gonna get into Amplio and what you guys are doing now and kind of the larger mission you're both serving at the moment. Um, but first let's hear a little bit about your background, which for some reason is usually the harder questions for people to answer. <laughs> um, so Chris, tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in South Georgia and, uh, and, and so small town, um, you know, Friday nights were about football and, and, um, and, and, you know, when I look back, I just think about a great town to grow up in. Um, but for the most part, everyone, everyone thought the same way. Everyone spoke the same way, kind of believed the same things. Generally, there was a, a uniformity for the most part of the way that people, um, you know, believed and thought and, and acted. And, um, and so I never thought I'd be in a position you know, fast forward several years um, to be a part of, of, you know, community where that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think that um, has always been really fascinating part of this journey is because it wasn't something that I saw or had, uh, you know, had a perspective on at an early age, but grateful for growing up in a, in a town where uh, faith was really important, um, you know, football and, and family, you know, those are the, those are kind of the, the <laughs> core, um, you know, essentials. And, you know, a lot of that gets reflected in the community that we serve now. And, and so it's fun to see those similarities, even though there's a lot of differences. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like we were on parallel tracks, except I was in a small town in West Texas. You were in a small town in South Georgia, but yes, family faith in football is pretty much what sums up a lot of my background as well, so I can relate. What about you, Harris? What was your childhood like? Uh, actually, my childhood, I, I grew up in Afghanistan. Actually, my my childhood, or to be honest, my childhood, I grew up running around. Mm. The reason I'm saying the the reason I'm saying I'm running around because when I was uh, seven years old, so the civil war started in Afghanistan and after that after the civil war then then the um, the internal war with the local leaders in the country started everybody were fighting for the power so we were running around for example we were running from Kabul the capital to the logger to my province to be safe and then when it, when the fight started from there then finally we ended up become a refugee in Pakistan for a couple of years, so the reason of the the reason that my dad, uh, my late dad, he wanted that anything happen to the world, 
he didn't want their children to be uneducated in, in this country. Because on that time, the education system, the schools, the college, everything was like totally destroyed. And uh, my mom, she is a, she is a, uh, she is a doctor. And my, my uh, father, he was a, uh, he was a um, P, first PhD older in economics in Afghanistan. So he wanted us to move out from the country, not due to the save our lives. It's also due to the, um, our education because he always says, he always said that a person without education is already a dead person. So he always said that. He always said that. And for us, our, um, the way we learn English at the beginning, we never went to any tuition classes or anything. My mom and my dad, they were the, our English teachers. We have the books and any questions we had, we just asked them. I said, what the meaning of this question? And even we didn't have to open the dictionary to just search for the, the, the meaning and the, um, the meaning of a word and where we can use it till we moved to the Pakistan. Then when we moved to the Pakistan, I was in third grade when we moved to Pakistan, when the, the war started. So till 12th grade, I was in Pakistan. Then I joined the, then I joined the English tuition classes. And at age of 11, I graduated from the, I age of 11, I graduated from the English tuition classes. And again, then I rejoined again. Then again, I graduated again in 2003. So then after that, when the when the civil war finished in 20, 20 plus years ago, when there is a suitable government and when the U.S. came to the Afghanistan, so we moved back to Afghanistan. Okay. And and at the same time, when I was in, in uh, Pakistan, actually, I was at age of nine when I was playing volleyball. And because... With the eye, like with the adults all the time when I was going in a match, they would say that he's a kid. If he's going to be hit with a ball, it's not good for safety-wise. But somehow they let me allow to play with them. So we ended up back going to Afghanistan. And um, when I went to Afghanistan, then I first I thought my father become the, the actually, the, I can say the voice uh, I can say the deputy vice president for the Ministry of Information and Technology. So there was a university which has been controlled by by that uh, ministry. Um, and I joined and my father asked all our brothers, because we are five brothers, okay. two older than me and two younger than me. I am the middle one. So they said, I need one of you guys to be graduated from telecommunication engineering university everybody said no no but i was the one that pushed to that university and i and i graduated for, from that university uh, uh after four years and at the same time uh my father resigned from the government and he joined a uscid project from the u.s government so then i was with him one time in a gathering then i went from another company, they asked, talking to my dad, and he said, who is this young guy? My, my dad says, he's my son. He said, can he speak English? He said, yeah, he can speak English very well. Then I start talking with the CEO of that company. It's a very funny story. So it is very interesting. So I hope you, I didn't take you guys' time. <laughs> That's 
fantastic. Sounds so, like you come from a very smart family. Yeah. So then I came, then I, when I was start talking to him and the CEO of that company said to my dad, I really need this guy. I said, he is, he's just 18, 17. He said, how, he said, just he fixes his own schedule, set up, I, I will, I will fit him in a schedule that should be, he feel comfortable with education and also work. Then he hired me as a VIP interpreter for the, for himself. So my job was when, when a VIP guest from the U S especially mm-hmm. from Washington, DC, sure. they were visiting Afghanistan. My job was to go with them with the different ministries, ministries to meet with the ministers or just for the rehabilitation of Afghanistan. So my job was to translate for them. So step by step, then when I was get a little experience of how the business works and everything, they offered me to be the logistics manager. I'm a logistics assistant and a store in charge. Then I become the logistics assistant and uh, store in charge. Then I start building my career there. Wow. So then I start building my career there. So I learned, I studied, then step by step, I was promoted to the different uh, positions and logistics. And logistics, and uh, at the same time, it was a little bit harder to me because I was it. I was selected for the Afghan national volleyball team under uh, under nineteen. So mm-hmm. I played. I went out of the country a couple of times to play to play for my country. Then uh, when I turned twenty, then I joined the national team and I played for the national team for five mm-hmm. till I moved to the US and I quit. Wow. Uh, yeah, and I'm a national volleyball player. That so, is incredible. Yeah, so after that, from that position... Harris, I had no idea <laughs> that you played volleyball. Why have we not played volleyball yet? <laughs> trust me, uh, uh, do you know, when we were start playing volleyball, I was playing for the national team, and at the same time, I had my own team from my cousins, that they are 14 and 16 and 17. And you won't believe me that all those teenagers that I coach and train them, all of them joined the, uh, the national team. That wow. might be perfect, yeah. So and is it genetics or good coaching? Seriously. Well, uh, actually, good coaching, to be honest with you. It's because <laughs> that, that... So humble. Being in Afghanistan, Chris, and my income was like $800 per month was my salary. And I was using that 400, I will give it to the family and 400, I was using it for the team. Wow. For their clothes, energy, ground and everything which is necessary. And then, and five tournaments back to back, even I beat the national Wow. So how big, I, I, I don't associate volleyball with Afghanistan. So how big a sport is volleyball there? Actually in Afghanistan, there is, couple of sports which is very popular okay it's a soccer uh-huh a wrestling wrestling uh, okay. yeah boxing okay uh, um volleyball and in these days they like it they they just familiar with the cricket as well the cricket they play cricket yeah uh, and uh and uh, also now they like the free fight wow. mma now they have good mma clubs that they are I think some of them are joining the MMA clubs here in the U.S. They are they have good fighters. That's fascinating. I yeah, we're in the midst of a celebrity here. I didn't realize this. I, 
not. I am not. <laughs> it's really, uh, yeah, it's so interesting. So let me ask you, like, now we're hitting your kind of, you've already done so much and you're like 20 at this stage. Um, so let me stop you for a second there. Let me switch back to Chris and I'll, I want to hear some more about, um, some more about that as well. But Chris, let's talk a little bit about your, you talked about just being in a very homogenous, really environment growing up. So now you're doing something completely different. Like you said, something you would have never seen yourself doing. So now that you're kind of trying to, to kind of tie those together, is there something that happened in your early years or a story that kind of now looking back at shaped who you are and what you're doing now? Yeah, I just, I I think I look back on um, recognizing that there is so much uh, different culture. There's so much different, um, uh, different backgrounds that people come from that just create such rich texture and tapestry to the community that we're a part of now. And in some ways, um, you know, kind of sad that I think sometimes we miss out on that because it's natural for us to be afraid of things that are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even when we, when we stepped into the community um, that we're a part of now, um, it's, it's called Clarkston. It's the most of our square mile in the U S and um, it's right outside of Atlanta and, and kind of tucked in in a way that you drive past it and would never know it was there necessarily unless you stop and take notice. Um, but as we began to engage uh, people there, um, we just we just realized the like the beauty of multiple cultures um, bringing their very best to the table, and you know how it can impact the world around them and add so much value. So um, I don't have a specific story as much from being you know be, being a, being a child and how it's kind of affected us, um, but I I always remember um, the idea of of you know caring for the sojourner or reaching out and. and you know, being kind um, and trying to help those who, you know, we would say were less fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as we moved into this community, what we expected to find um, were were people who were less fortunate or people who, you know, were struggling in some capacity. The reality is we found a lot of people who were hungry to add value, um, to contribute to their local economy, to be a part of an ongoing kind of solution and, you know, bringing their culture to bear and bringing their experience and knowledge um, to bear on, on local companies and, and in the community in really positive, impactful ways. And so it kind of, uh, it, it was unexpected, but also such a, such an incredible blessing to our life to be a part of that story. Yeah, for sure. Harris, what about you? It sounds like there's a lot to draw from on your path from the, the emphasis that education played in your life from your parents to um, translating to volleyball to all of those things. Is there a story kind of from your early years that really shaped the person you are today? Actually, to be honest with you, that uh, uh, especially uh, growing up in a country like the people like just running around for their life, mm-hmm. actually, to be honest with you, Moving the U.S. government in Afghanistan, that gave us a good shape. Mm-hmm. That gave us the power to speak up. That was the time that the they start people to start start value the education. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the power, not the money. The people was start respecting the people who are educated. So I can say that after the U.S. moved in 
and the people recognize that at the end of the day, war, power, guns, and um, c- criminal activities are not uh, not something that it will take you to higher levels. The education is something that um, um, that that you need if you go anywhere. Because there was a couple of times that happened, Christy, that I was I was uh, go uh, because based on my job, uh, as I said, that working for that company and has start as a VIP interpreter. And you won't believe that I resigned from that company as a CEO. I was the CEO and country director of that company. Wow. Yeah, I resigned when I moved to the U.S. So I resigned and they offered me to work for that company over here in Washington, State, Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. But there was some terms and conditions and there was some, some like I was not feeling comfortable with the few things that they said. And, and then I refused uh, to join. So with with that being said, so as Chris mentioned before, actually there is a lot of good educated people. Mm-hmm. They just need the right path. Sure. And, but because when I moved to the U.S., everybody was saying that that Harris, there is a there is no shame in any job. All work is work. As long as you work, that's everything. Work is work. It doesn't mean you are a, you are a president, you are a labor, you are anything. Work is work. They were telling me that, uh, okay, let's join. A, we are working in a, this restaurant. Come join us inside the kitchen or be a cashier or just uh, we are cleaning plates and everything. And I said that uh, uh, I'm a fighter. I, 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 I get anything I want in my life. I will not give up that much soon. So like Right now, I'm attending this meeting with you guys. I was a volunteer speaker for IRC, one of the resettlement agencies here. I was one of the speakers. And trust me, when I was one, I was in one of the conferences, that live conference, like thousands of people sitting there. When I entered, to be honest with you, I was like, I was like nervous. How I'm going to speak? But I said, okay, we will, because everybody from um, um, other countries like. Uh, Syria, Pakistan, or other countries, they have their translators with them, with their representatives, but I was by my own. And only my wife was sitting straight in front of me. So you will be shocked that 18% of the questions on that conference has been asked from me. Mm-hmm. And trust me, when I finished that, I, I, feel, I, feel, I felt like a big stone stick in top of my heart because I take out everything which I, I knew it about everything about how we are going to help the new immigrants. So I got my first job from that conference because somebody came to me and asked me, are you working? I said, no. And he said, do you mind if you can give me your uh, resume and I will going to give it to someone. And my first job here in the United States, I got and I was a, a shipping and receiving manager. And they were not an existing position on that company. They created that position for me to join. Wow. Then, then after I joined that company, definitely I work hard. I, I increased their receiving department by $250,000 in a day. And I increased their shipping by $300,000 in a day. Well, but uh, I worked for that company for two years. Then uh, I see there is not more... Uh, then I see there's a lot more opportunities around. So I start looking around. Then I got this pharmaceutical uh, position. Mm-hmm. 
and I got this through. I just uh, that was an online, online. Um, uh, I submit an online application, and mm-hmm. you will be. You won't believe me that they put the offer letter in front of me at the first day of interview, and I signed. I can't believe it. <laughs> I can believe it from everything you've said. I absolutely can. Yeah, that's a, an incredible story. And so, yeah, so many layers to that. Um, let's circle back to that in a minute. And then we'll also pick up after your pro volleyball tour. <laughs> um, so, Chris, let's talk about pre-Amplia. What were, what were you doing before Amplia recruiting? Yeah, let's see. Before Amplia, um, I went to grad school. I um, uh, started working uh, for Chick-fil-A and for a few years got to work uh, at one specific restaurant as a general manager and then did some consulting. Uh, my wife was doing grand openings with them. And so we got a really good experience of, of um, you know, what it's like to lead a team and, and make a lot of mistakes um, on Chick-fil-A's dime in terms of business and a lot of free chicken. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, and then we uh, worked for a, a faith based microfinance organization called Hope International. And so they do microfinance around the globe. And it was kind of this intersection of of helping people, having social impact, um, but providing a physical, um, you know, uh, both a felt need and, and kind of, uh, you know, other needs that surround that. So really focusing on how do we support people physically right. and, and help them move in a positive direction. And so that was really formative um, and, and kind of learning from both the business and social impact kind of tandem there. Yeah. And so um, when we moved into Clarkston, we still had that uh, in the forefront of our mind, like, you know, are there, is there a way we could um, engage this community? Uh, with a business, not necessarily a nonprofit, but a business that could could create social impact um, in this area, and um, and so through a lot of of conversations and 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 questions and just learning from people and sitting in their homes and and as often as they would let us sitting around their dinner table um, when they would cook for us and just enjoying, but also learning as much as we could, um, we just came to this conclusion that. Uh, jobs were the number one um, desire and really stability is the, is the number one desire, but jobs and employment play such a critical role in that. And so we expected people to fall into one of two categories. Either they were going to be a charity case and, uh, and they would be people who have experienced a lot of trauma. And, um, and so they deserve to live out their days in the U S being supported by our tax dollars kind of kick up their feet and live in safety and not have to worry about, you know, terrorism or the things that force them to flee, or they would be a terrorist threat. They would be people who have, uh, you know, a dangerous intentions of getting into the U S in some way. And we have to be very careful and watch them closely. So that's what, that's what my background and in in kind of media told me to expect. And how did and you get about Clarkston in the first place? Uh, it was really by accident. We didn't move into the community on purpose. Um, we were trying to find a home we could afford on a certain side of town that um, we could be close to family and ended up, you know, stumbling on Clarkston. And, and um, I think I told my wife, you know, it looks like there might be some good ethnic food here. I and mean, we had no idea, uh, you know, what this community was all about. Um, but in moving in and meeting people, we realized, these individuals are not a charity case. They're not a terrorist threat. They're, they're the people who uh, are trying to escape terrorism 
Um, they're actually a workforce. They're actually people who want to add value. They want to contribute. They want to find employment. They want to be a part of, you know, something beautiful for their local economy. And that's what really triggered like, okay, can we build a business around that mentality and that opportunity? Absolutely. You know, so what does that look like? And that's kind of what led us down this road. And so I don't know if you want to give, you've mentioned Clarkston, um, which is a beautiful little place. If anybody gets the chance to go there that hasn't been there yet, um, go to Refuge Coffee, my friend's coffee shop. I'll plug that. Um, but they, uh, I don't know if you want to give any more background. It's a really interesting place from a lot of different levels. That, so I don't know if you want to explain anything else about Clarkston. Yeah, I mean, it's a really unique place. There's a documentary that just came out that you can find uh, in a few different areas where you find documentaries. Um, uh, that kind of tells the story of, you know, a, a community that, um, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, and even really into the eighties and nineties, um, there was a lot of friction around, um, refugees moving in. And, and for whatever reason, this was just the, the community that was determined by the state as a, an appropriate place to, to resettle refugees who at the time were coming from Southeast Asia. And so really it was because of there, there was some decent public transportation to kind of get to different parts of the city. There was an abundance of uh, multifamily housing and there was a manufacturing kind of at the time, sort of an industrial um, part of, of town there where there were some jobs available. So it made a lot of sense at the time. Um, and, and, you know, other communities around the U S that, that have similar populations of, of refugees um, kind of outgrew the areas they were in and then and sort of became fragmented around Metra. For whatever reason, in Atlanta, um, Clarkston has just continued to be that hub. So now for 50, 60 years, it's been the place where wave upon wave of immigrants have mm-hmm. been resettled. So Southeast Asia, um, uh, um, you know, from, from people from Vietnam and um, other parts of Southeast Asia then became parts, uh, people coming from Africa, um, from all over uh, East Africa, West Africa, Central Africa. Um, and then that gave way to um, uh, the individuals from the Middle East. Um, so Iraq, Iran, certainly from Syria when that crisis hit a few years back. And then most recently, um, the Afghan community. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so um, it's, a, it's a really unique place. Um, there's a lot of people walking in their native uh, uh, garb and not as many vehicles or cars on the road as you would expect. Um, and then the most traveled bike route in the state of Georgia cuts right through the city. So it's just on a daily, daily basis, there's just a unique mix of community and people that are interacting there and, um, we're growing and, um, and, you know, excited about new opportunities that are coming to our side of town. Yeah. That's a good, good explanation. Thank you. And I'm sorry, I just want to add one, one oh, more. Uh, I miss that community as well, because when I moved to the U.S. in uh, Feb, 20, Feb 2017, I moved to the Clarkstone areas. I actually, I start my life from Clarkstone area. And I, I just, uh, uh, I can say eight months ago, I, uh, I, I, got, I got my own house and I moved out from there eight months ago. To be honest with you, I, I like that community. And because of my three kids, because I need a good schools with good ratings, that's why I moved them over to a different, to Gunnett area. Otherwise, 
I never never ever leave that area, right? For example, if I want to some bread from my country or something from my country, right now I need to travel for 40 minutes to Clarkestone area to buy the stuff and drive back 40 minutes back to my house. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, that wasn't five minutes distance anywhere, anything I needed. Mm-hmm. And I miss, to be honest with you, I miss the area. Yeah. Yeah, I miss that area. Actually, uh, has uh, Mr. Chris uh, added, actually, I can say 90 to 95% of the refugees who came to Atlanta, Georgia, Atlanta, they start from li- their life from Clarkston. Mm-hmm. And I can say 90 to 95%. And, and uh, because especially in these days, uh, uh, Chris, Chris knows my wife as well. She, her name is Shaista Amani, and she's working with a nonprofit organization. So the help which we got during our transition here in United States, and she took all those experiences, and also she took all those struggling struggles that we do, we uh, we had on that time. Now she's using all those her background and our background experiences. Now she is representing like plus 200 families on the area. Yeah, that she always in touch with them if they need anything, if they like, definitely we are, especially me, I'm really, really uh, uh, appreciate Chris help, especially with this new job, which I get, I got this job through Chris mm-hmm. and I uh, he introduced me to Accenture, to Accenture that, that they be um, you guys are looking for a supply chain and operation consultant. So he is the right person. He introduced it to me. Then uh, definitely there was, uh, Chris, I don't know, you know that, but there was plus 11 interviews from me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Plus 11 interviews from me. And uh, it's because you have a lot to say. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, you know, sometime when I was sitting in interview, if you guess a lot of things about your background and what you can do, so the expectation of the employer is getting more higher from you and they, they keep discussing it with their upper level. This guy can do this, this, that. Then definitely, okay, I want the interview. He wants an interview. So that's why it keeps happening. But the only thing which is a take a little time because uh, I have two bachelors, uh, uh, two bachelors, uh, one in telecommunication, uh, electric engineering and I have also a bachelor and uh, in business so to verify my bachelor my uh, uh, business bachelor it took some time because of all this crisis in Afghanistan so nothing yeah. is there no one is going to verify anything like Shaista graduated from political science and she's struggling now to get her to get her bachelor out of the university there's no one there's no record like there's a lot of thing going on my community in these days after this crisis. So, but overall, again, Chris, thank you so much, man, for all those help, uh, all those help. I know you are man of your word. I think I know you since two years now, more than that, actually. And also Chris is the one, Christy, that during the evacuation of my family, mm-hmm. family from Afghanistan, that he knows how, how that was hard for me because uh, because if my family was left behind there, so mm-hmm. none of them will be alive till now. Mm-hmm. So Chris made a big contribute on that as well. And we finally, we made it. So all my family joined me here in the United States. 
and so they are happily settled on their own houses we help them like uh, they have their own cars their own apartments they have their jobs now they work around so everything is going well so thank you so much chris chris we'll uh, clip that out so you can tag that on your website <laughs> And all your social media channels, because that's an incredible endorsement right there. Although I'm sure it's one of many that you have. So we've kind of danced around um, Amplio Recruiting and what it is, but now let's get into the specifics. So tell everybody formally what it is and what you guys do and what the mission is. Yeah, thanks for sharing all that, Harris. Mm -hmm. uh, you set me up well here. So um, yeah, so so Amplio Recruiting was formed in 2014, and as I said, it was these conversations with people really expressing their desire to not just have a job, but contribute and learn and grow and develop and be a part of this community and, and add value to the local economy. And so we, we looked at several different types of companies, but at the end of the day, we said, if we could start a staffing business, we know nothing about staffing and really nothing about HR, but if we could start a staffing business, there's a chance that we'd be able to employ uh, a, a large number of people and um, and connect them into all types of work, no matter the background that they're coming from. So that was kind of the idea back in 2014. And it just started with, there's a lot of companies that need hire. Um, back then, it was really difficult to hire in 2014. Here in 2022, right. um, there were already challenges um, in uh, you know finding really good talent. So the companies that we were connected to would say, we can't find good people. The people in our community would say, we can't find good jobs. And right. so we just said, let's, let's create this company where we can match those two groups together. And, uh, and we feel like that could be an opportunity for, um, you know, some, some positive impact on both sides. Mm -hmm. So we, we kind of thought maybe this would be sort of a side project or, you know, maybe sort of a passion project type thing. We didn't really know what would happen. Um, but over eight years now, uh, we've grown into multiple cities across the country. We're serving, you know, well over a hundred companies. We've placed about 10,000 refugees into full-time employment and, uh, and we'll do, we'll do $20 million in revenue this year. I mean, so we are way beyond what we ever expected. There's still plenty of days where we feel like we don't know what we're doing and we're still trying to figure it out. Um, and there's certainly lots of, uh, ups and downs in that journey, but by and large, We've been able to grow and scale a company based on the fact that the individuals we're caring and serving and putting into jobs are incredibly diligent, dependable, uh, hardworking people who want to add value in their local economy and in their community and, and be an incredible employee for local companies. Yeah. Well, besides that, obviously, the your main focus is um, finding jobs for refugees and displaced people. What else makes Amplio a special and unique place for um, companies to, to look to? I'm going to guess customer service is very high because of your Chick-fil-A background, but I'm sure there are other things, too. Wow. I, I mean, so the focus is like every day, heads down, um, there are people coming into our office that... Um, have experienced uh, what we would say is they've kind of lost dignity on their journey. They, I mean, you hear it in Harris's story, right? There was a position of influence and authority or some, some level of pride in the things that they kind of had going on and the efforts towards their career that they were making. And that's interrupted. And, um, and then in that, to try to reestablish um, not just their livelihood and some level of stability, but to reestablish that pursuit after a career and something they could be proud of 
is really difficult. And I certainly would be, uh, it'd be really difficult for me to try to do that in a new place. And we can all, you know, somewhat try to put ourselves um, in, in the shoes of those who've had to walk that path. And so they come in our office. We have about 500 people a month walking in our office, even today when, you know, companies are saying we can't find people. We have almost 500 people in attendance looking for a job. So um, there are people even today who are um, excited, incredible people, um, you know, looking for the right opportunity. And so, you know, they come in our office and many times it's with shoulders slumped and, and kind of head down, you know, trying to, you know, they'll just say, if we were to ask what kind of job are you looking for? They'd say, you know, any job, mm. um, you know, we have, um, one of our team members who's also from Afghanistan. Um, he says that USA stands for you start again. And he tells, especially the Afghans that come in our office, he tells them that. And so there's this, like, I'll take any job. And as, as much as we recognize there's a desperation in saying that, it's like, no, tell us what you used to do. What was your background before you came? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the skills that you acquired and some of the experience you have that might be a really good fit for a company that's, you know, trying to fill certain positions. So about 80% of the roles we fill are in industrial type positions, distribution centers, um, and, and positions where fluency in English is not a requirement on day one, uh, where you just need people who are willing to learn and, and you know, show up on time and, and put in a good day's work. And then we've got another, you know, 20 or so percent of the placements that we make that are more professional, more white collar type um, opportunities for people like Harris, who have more of a background uh, in business or more of a professional environment and who are really great volleyball players. And yeah. so um, we try to we try to balance it out and, and you know, grateful for companies like Accenture, who we can place people in professional positions um, like Harris is about to step into. And, and then, you know, a lot of other uh, companies, small and medium sized warehouses, all the way up to, you know, the Cisco's. Um, the advanced auto parts, the, um, you know, the Albertsons that have these large distribution centers across the country. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so yes, Harris, let's talk about, we left you off, I think at professional volleyball and translating and leading supply chains and then a CEO position that you turned down. So there's a lot to choose from here, but I'm also curious, um, what were the circumstances, as, as much as you're comfortable saying, what were the circumstances that brought you to the U.S.? Actually, the I start coming to the U.S. from starting 2011. Okay. So I was coming back and forth because I in 2011, when I become the, uh, the operation manager for one of the biggest uh, operations and for the US US government in Afghanistan and I when I was the operation manager I was responsible to manage 374 employees definitely I had my assistants my my uh, individual managers and individual departments but overall I was the I was the one who were leading so in 2000 um, and uh, and 2012, our civilian contracts with the U.S. government has been completed and the company focused on the U.S. Army projects. So then from 2012 to 2017, 17, till I was there, then we start working 
for the U.S. Army projects. And I was responsible to, and me and my team were responsible to provide, to provide generator power because I become the country director for the company, like CEO plus country director. And uh, then I was responsible to provide generator power for plus 15 U.S. Army bases in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And how tough that was and how, how I managed those projects because uh, it's a it's a it's a very interesting story. When they offered me this job, and when I was sitting in a table with them, and this because the the country director resigned, and they were looking for a replacement, and they thought eighty percent of this project is already controlled by a Harris. Why we are not going to give him this opportunity? And I told them I'm not an electric uh, engineer. I don't have any background of how the gensets work and everything. And they said. They said we will give you advisors. So they give me two, two, uh, uh, two local U.S. advisors, engineers that they will advise me and create the proposals and everything, and make prepare me, prepare me when I attending to enter to a big meetings, like to represent the company. They already trained and prepared me about technical advice, technical advice. So when they offered to me, so it's it's funny that the company president he said, okay, everybody is here. Where is Harris, the guy who works for the company? And we are, and my my boss on that said, yeah, he is Harris sitting beside me, beside me. And he said, what? I said, yeah, he is Harris. He said, he's just a kid. <laughs> I then my boss said, yeah, he is Harris. He said, I was expecting Harris Amani to be like a, at least fifty five plus years old, and he's just a kid. And I said, uh, yes, sir. How old I, were you at this time? Uh, I'm sorry? How, how old were you when this happened? I was 27. Wow. Okay. So as again, I say it. If I, if I shave, I will look like a, a teenager. <laughs> so, so I told them that I'm going to run it for two, uh, three months. And if I feel comfortable, I will accept the position. If I don't, bring somebody. Then after three months, I saw everything works well and the team is following the instruction and, and the car, the projects are going very well. So I keep doing it. So the reason I moved here, because uh, starting from 2014, I start receiving warning calls, mm-hmm. warning emails, warning letters. So that why you are working for the U.S. government, the U.S. government will be here, not forever. When they're gone, we will, we will, we will see you. But the, uh, what the, the shadow gets tighter on that time in mid-2015, uh, that when I receive a call, I didn't answer. And f- finally, I said maybe something, someone is calling me from different numbers. Because while we're, when I was in Afghanistan, if somebody's cell phone number is not saved in my mobile, I would never, ever answer. Mm-hmm. So they said, now we know. Where are you? And currently, you are, drive, you are driving a, 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 a blue Land Cruiser. Yeah. And this is your license plate number, and you're taking a right turn. Oh, my. That was the time that I was scared. Because it was not the first time. Because in 2009-ish, uh, uh, I went to for, a, for a ceremony to open a school and a clinic. Mm-hmm. And on my way, I was ambushed and uh, there was four bullets in my body. And uh, I was left on the deal on the place that people would think that he's gone. He's no more. But but I was lucky I was alive. And uh, so then I applied. Then I uh, mm, then I applied 
contact the U.S. Uh, embassy in Afghanistan and said all these little issues. And they said document everything and uh, apply for a for a uh, immigration system which is called SIV. Mm-hmm. It's not a refugee. It's called SIV. It's it's a, a special immigrant visa, a special okay. immigrant visas. So I applied for that. And during this time, I was hiding and switching my location from one for complete two years wow. just to be to be safe. And but during this time, I was also invited by by University of Pennsylvania and I was selected out of uh, four uh, 400 candidates from Afghanistan. And I was selected because I should send my short speech to them and they selected me and they invited me to give a speech at uh, ministry, uh, University of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. And but the shocking thing was that my my topic his speech was a little. Uh, I was not expecting to that what that was like all about the capital punishment. Why it still exists in your country? Mm-hmm. So that was very hard. And um, they gave me ten minutes, and I was I was not able to finish it in ten minutes. Yeah. Um, my. <laughs> It's like and, saying solve global peace in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, topic the chief guest was uh, the speech writer for Obama. Okay. So she raised her hand and she extended for as long as I need time. And it took me 35 minutes to finish the speech. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then after in Feb 2017, uh, I receive a call. I receive an email from the U.S. Embassy to drop your passports. Mm-hmm. I dropped my passports and I complete the medical checkup. And then uh, they issue the visas for me and for my wife and two kids. And I, and I left Afghanistan and I moved to the U.S. To moving to the U.S. Moving to the U.S. is just on that time to, uh, to save my life. When those accidents happened in, in uh, 2009, I was single. To be honest with you, to being single... You can take a lot of risk. You are not worried about it. But when you get married, especially in a country in Afghanistan, with one head, there is another head connected, your wife. So one head, then when you get, when you used to have kids, so three lives was connected with me. So that's why I said, if something happens, if I, if I lose my life, what will happen with, this, with my kids and wives? So then I decided to move out of Afghanistan and I come to the U.S. And definitely there is still companies up to now that they are still want me to become their country director and they run their business back in Afghanistan. I said, especially at this time, no. So this transition took a lot out of me, a lot. And it was a very hard transition. As I, expl- as I, as I explained before that, that to being a country director for a company and you never drive, you had your own driver and you sit in a very nice office and you have somebody to make your, even you to make your, to make you a coffee early morning, bring and put it on your table. And, and you, how you were well-respected, even, even I will, if I want to go to the president palace, anytime I want it, I can go. Anytime I want it, I can go to the president palace because I was registered there. And I was like, through my sport, I was known by people. Through my work, I was known by people. So that's why I was like, I was living a good life. And I left everything behind 
and I start my my uh, new career in U.S. And the day came here at the U.S. because do you know I was man when I was the shipping and receiving manager, I was responsible to manage uh, twenty eight employees. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of thing going on here, like a lot of thing. Like they keep fighting. Oh, he works hard. I work slow. He so there's a lot in like the time it came that I was start feeling that I'm I'm managing a third grade class instead of an adult team. So that was a lot. If sometimes it happens because I don't want it to lose the job and I want to make some bread to the family, sometimes it happens that I take out my white shirt and my tie, put it aside, and wear a shirt and a safety glasses, mm-hmm. uh, safety glass gloves, and I get in get into the container and I start unloading the containers by myself. Even on the weekend, sometimes when because I sometimes if my boss approved. I went by myself and I unload the container by my whole 220 uh, 244er container and I unload it alone by myself. Unload, palletize it, move it to the different location because I needed the money. Yeah. I need the fund because because I cannot ra- raise my hand to somebody to help me with somebody because as long has I'm a self-built person. No like no I build myself. I build everything for myself. Definitely my parents have a big part of it, sure. but but I work hard, very hard. Like sometime, even in this company that I'm working now, one day they asked me, and you are free time, even we didn't see you in your phone. And I said, why? When I have free time, there is a system, it's called master control. That's that the... Um, you put all your procedures, the SOPs, SOWs, like everything on that. So if you struggling, knows about a policy or SOP, you get into that and just find out how you're going to do this job. I never go to the SOP that much for my department because I memorized everything. Anything you ask me, I memorized it. Yeah. So, But when I was free, I get into master control and I start learning other departments' activities how their rules are, because definitely at the end of the day, if somebody says that my department is 100% perfect, there's no issues, there's no errors, anything, it means there's tons of errors on that department. Because <laughs> the first error is that you don't have to think that to make everything perfectly fine based on your department comfort and your department procedures. You, you have to think your comfort maybe going to affect other department. You have to work as a team, right. as a team to make your department who looks better. Definitely sometime when I see other departments make some changes, I compare it to my I compare it to my work activities. If it's good, yeah, why not? But if it's going to affect me, then definitely I'm going to speak up and not to speak up like say something from my belly. I come up with a presentation to them. This is how I feel if we do it, that yeah. will be better for both of us. What do you guys think? Then definitely there will be a revision, revision submission to the SOP. Then we do SOPs. I've done this a couple of times. I changed a couple of times SOPs with the revisions. So this is yeah. you're, you're a great catch for any company. I'm surprised they're not out there just fighting over you, or maybe they will be after this interview. We'll see. But I, I do want to back up to a couple things that you said and kind of get a little bit more of an explanation on that. The 
Um, first of all, you mentioned the threats on your life, all of the shooting, the, all of that. I feel like that is definitely more the perspective that we get here in the Western world. Afghanistan is a scary place. There's lots of bad things that go on, but I know it's also a beautiful, amazing country. So what do you wish that people knew about Afghanistan that we don't hear much of? Actually, this will be my dream. The, the people should understand and know better about the good people in Afghanistan. Mm. Like 60, 60 years ago, like each year, plus plus ten plus five million of uh, tourists are visiting Afghanistan. It's a beautiful country, Christy. Beautiful mountains. Desert. It's a beautiful country. Beautiful. So the bad, the bad thing uh, I felt here is sometimes uh, only the media sh- presenting the bad face of sure. the Afghan country because the good news will not be sell that much, mm-hmm. but the bad news will sell like that. Yeah. Easy, easy to people watch, oh, what's going on in Afghanistan? Somebody from Afghanistan, do that, do that, do this, do that, do this, do that. But okay, like, let's put me here. When I was the operation manager in Afghanistan, I was responsible for plus 300 U.S. citizens in Afghanistan. And I take care of them like my own family. And I have a record during my operation manager, not a single person injured. That much I was, I was on top of everything to save these people from all those threats around. Security is in it. So why they are not putting something me, and why they are not putting somebody like the first, the first uh, award, I uh, first uh, bronze medal in Olympics in a country. Mm-hmm. Why you are not going to show that? Why you are not going to show the beautiful mountains? Why you are not going to show the beautiful river? Why you are not going to show the the the, the good hospitality of the Afghan people? Mm-hmm. People, why you are not going to see their beautiful culture, their clothes, their food, their the way they live, their hobbies, their horse like buskashi that they are horse riding and 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 there's a lot of good things actually. There's a positive things, Christy, that they have to focus on instead of the bad thing. One thing I'm going to tell, I'm going to say here is one bad person or two, let's see, five million bad per bad people are in a country cannot represent the 37 million people population in Afghanistan. Right. You know what I mean? So that's why this this is my dream that my country should be known as a country, people with good hospitality, with clean heart, with welcoming other people to, to come to visit their countries, to their country. So this is my dream. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, sometimes we only, uh, we see our the bad faces in the media. Not the good faces. Right. Not, not at all. Well, hopefully we'll change some hearts and minds through this conversation <laughs> and people catching it um, later on as well. And Chris, I want to bring you back in real quick. I know we've kind of thrown around the terms refugee a few times, um, immigrant, all of those. There are misconceptions about immigrants and refugees and the differences and kind of the pers- the not only the perspectives and the circumstances, but the processes that they go through. So you want to speak a little bit to that? 
Sure. Yeah, I, I think that um, there. Yeah. The, so, so the term refugee maybe can get misused or, or misinterpreted. Uh, and so, a good way to think about it is that that kind of the highest level uh, term that's used is immigrant. And under the term immigrant, there are lots of different categories. Um, we 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 immediately think of documented or undocumented. Mm-hmm. Some people would use the words legal, you know, legal or illegal. And then, you know, you think about those who have come to the U.S. in different ways, those who are seeking asylum, those who come on various types of visas that exist, if it's a tourist visa um, or a, a student visa. So there's all these different um, categories under the term immigrant and refugee is one of those categories. And so um, for those who have been resettled through the United Nations, through UNHCR, Um, They are brought to the U.S. They go through extensive screening from Homeland Security. Uh, The director of the FBI says it's harder to come into the country as a refugee than it is to join the FBI. And um, and so they go through this extensive screening and then um, they are considered a refugee. They are giving documentation to be able to do all the things that we would do as U.S. citizens, except for being able to vote. And so they are able to, they're authorized to work. Um, they're able to get a driver's license and um, they're able to get a job, to pay taxes, to, you know, to have a bank account. Um, and then after five years, they can apply for citizenship and, and, and then um, in, in getting their citizenship would be able to, to vote as well. So, um, so that's the, the standard kind of typical process that a refugee goes through as they come into the U S that they would be, resettled in various communities across the country um, in association with refugee resettlement agencies that exist across the country. And those are nonprofits whose job it is to meet people at the airport and uh, help them find housing, get kids enrolled in school, uh, kind of help show them bus routes and kind of get them acclimated. And, uh, and we work in partnership with all of those agencies across the country to help with job placement. Um, so um, it's a it's a it's a really um, fairly organized process, mm-hmm. but there's a lot that goes into it. And uh, and certainly right now, as we've had waves of Afghans and now Ukrainians coming into the country, uh, the process has been somewhat chaotic. Uh, there's a lot of backlogs in the system, um, and the system is very much overwhelmed. Sure. And uh, and so that's where employers can step up and have an even greater role to play and supporting the process and uh, and certainly for those employers who are in desperate need of dependable employees. Yes. Well, speaking of, and of course, one of the reasons we have you on here is not just to hear both of your incredible stories, but we want more people to be hired. We know there are needs out there, especially in the world of supply chain and logistics. We hear that every day. Everybody has a basic education in supply chain and logistics after the pandemic. Um, And Chris, you literally wrote the book on hiring refugees called Refugee Workforce, the Economic Case for Hiring the Displaced. So Speaking to hiring managers, um, CEOs, founders, C-suite people, what do you wish more people knew about hiring refugees and what is that economic case? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. I think that a lot of companies, and these are themes we've already kind of touched on even throughout the podcast, I think that um, a lot of companies, there's this thought that um, if we can't just go grab people in the same way that we've always recruited people and push them through the same process of onboarding and, and getting them into our company that we've always done, then it's 
not really worth the additional effort that it might take to engage, you know, people that don't necessarily, um, at least from, so that's what we really recognize is, wow, these people are incredible. I mean, you hear Harris's story and Harris is really unique. And yet at the same time, there are people just like him that have incredible backgrounds and stories and experience, mm-hmm. and they are somewhat sidelined from being able to, to participate in the workforce because it really is all about uh, getting that opportunity. And it's all about your social network and who you know and getting that introduction. And a lot of times they don't have the ability to pull on those same opportunities that we might have from growing up in this country and kind of knowing how to work the system. And so um, we would just say on the front end, if you recognize that um, you might change and tweak a little bit of your processes on the front end to engage this specific group of people or other marginalized groups of people that exist um, just outside the typical kind of workforce that we that we're looking for, you will create a really strong pipeline of candidates who are looking for work and see your company as a viable option for them. And so the economic case is recognizing, hey, we're all struggling to find people. And that hits the bottom line really hard in ways that we never expect it would. There's so many companies out there that that thought their most difficult challenge in being successful as a business would be about funding the right uh, you know, getting the right sales contract signed or, or, you know, getting the patent, you know, or, or, or establishing a really great supply chain. And, you know, there's all these factors that we thought were going to be the hardest. And in 2022, we're saying the hardest thing is I just can't get people to show up and do the work that I need them to do. And we're, we're just keep increasing our pay rates. And so if you're willing to change a little bit of those incoming practices of recruiting and retaining talent, specifically from the refugee workforce, you will see a huge benefit in the long run of loyalty and dependability. One of the biggest stats that we love talking about is that the industry standard right now for people who are hired on at any company mm-hmm. is right around 30%. So 10 people start and three people are left after just one month on the job. And you guys would say, Hey, it's much worse at our company. You know, we can't even find 10 people, much less, you know, see 10 people after a month, but we get to see numbers right at 80%. So eight out of 10 are still there after three months, seven out of 10 still working, still adding value after one year, 70%. And so that just speaks to the loyalty and the commitment that comes from this community when they're given and they experience that loyalty and commitment from you as the employer. But we also hear companies say, oh, we tried that and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we just say, no, if we get involved and we help you and identify the right people and help you move through that process with them for the first few months of employment, um, it can absolutely flip um, the numbers in your favor and have an incredible impact on this community that that desperately is seeking stability. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And Harris, what about you? What do you wish more people knew about hiring refugees and displaced people? Uh, I will recommend one thing for the people, especially with have more experience, but sometimes the mentality of the people with good education, when is getting to the U.S. So definitely they will be connected with one of their friends or families or anything. anything anyone who they knows here is that the first thing, which was based on my own experience, that they were saying, your education, your experience back home is nothing in the U.S. You have to have a degree from the U.S. 
if you want to get an office work or you have to study here again and get a degree and get to use with the rules and uh, with law and everything, then you get the, a good job here, which is, which is, I say it's a totally misunderstanding for the people because I'm, I can say I'm a good experience. I didn't listen to the people. I didn't listen to the community, what they are saying, as I said, I keep fighting and I keep trying till I, till I get the job. Like I, I, I tried for three months and I keep applying for the job because sometimes they said, if you are going to apply through the, like the online applications, Indie, Zip Recruiters or uh, um, LinkedIn or anything, they said, the only thing we received, it's emails. We didn't receive an interview call or anything. But, but when I was looking for a job, you won't believe me, every night at night till 4 a.m., I was applying plus 100 jobs till I find out this, uh, uh, this pharmaceutical uh, mm -hmm. position. But they have to get out of their comfort zone. Right. This is what I'm going. If you are going to stay in your comfort zone and you are not going to try and open your eyes to the world and keep knocking to the door, to the doors, to the doors, then you can't, you can't do anything. Definitely the recruiters, like a good recruiter, like Chris and his team, they, they will help them as much they can, but they also need to participate and speak up and start knocking the doors and make more networking all around. Networking all around the all around the world. If you have a good networking system, system, you're good. You're good. You will be not struggling for, for the job. For example, right now, like I was going to switch the job from this job and I have a network, which is Chris. So we, I contacted Chris. Uh, uh, hey, Chris, I'm looking for a new job, um, and he said, "Do you uh, want to send your uh, send me your resume?" And even one day, I missed the interior call, and Chris called, sent me an email, and he said, "Harris, these people trying to reach you. This is their number. Uh, number, can you please uh, call them back?" And I called him, and that re that relationship starts from there. Mm -hmm. So, definitely, they have to. Definitely, they should. You should listen to people all around what they are saying, but pick up the positives. Yeah. Positive. Come out from your comfort zone. Do not stop trying. If you are currently working for a job, we are not feeling comfortable with it, and you need that money to bring food to the family. Keep doing it, and at the same time, if you put two hours and aside, and instead of go to the Facebook or just chit chat around. That two hours time or one hour's time, if you give it for yourself to look around for more opportunities, I'm more than 100 person. There is someone, there will be someone that who needs the people same like you. Yeah. Same like you and you will get it. But all the communities, not from my community, Afghans, Syrians, or all who do refugees are here in the country, they just need a step. They just need a chance to get in and a little bit, a little bit training and they are, they will, they will adopt and they will be those type of people that they will not switch and leave you at the middle of nowhere for a couple of dollars. They will think, they will think, oh, they helped me. They helped me on my bad time. 
and why I should leave them at the middle of nowhere and they don't have an employee or misuse the company. They will not do like that. My first job when I was a shipping and receiving manager, manager, I was working for them from five to eight till I trained my replacement for free because they helped me when I need it. So I I just give back. I give it back to them. So this is my experience and this is what I'm going to say to everybody. Just please get out of your comfort zone, comfort zone and keep trying. Keep trying. The good job, the good opportunity is not coming back of your door to knock. Hey, I need you come. How? No. You have to go and look for it. Like, uh, and a good example is here is that a fa- recently a family moved uh, to Atlanta. Uh-huh. And he said, I was working for this company. And right now I lost the contact with all my supervisors and everybody. And I was a well-known person in this company. I said, do you know the company name? And he said, yes. I put the company name and I find that company is in uh, South Carolina. I sit with him in the car and he said, no, I'm not going. It will be not looks good. I said, look, trust me, let's go. Mm -hmm. So I sit with him in my car. I drive with him to the North Carolina. I went to that office. I knocked the door and I introduced him with them. And when they get into their system, they find it out. They said, oh, wow, you worked for us for almost 11 years in Afghanistan. I said, yes, he worked for you guys, but he was afraid and scared how to reach you guys. Mm. At the same day, they arranged a meeting with him and they said everything with him. And I was with him for two days in, uh, North, uh, in Carolina. And two days, they gave him a job and he moved to North Carolina. Now he have a good job. So this is the people have to think. Yeah. Like, like the companies would, will, will not follow up. Okay, after this crisis, where is Harris? They don't care. Mm-hmm. They don't know where our hair is till I'm going to contact them. So reach out to them, reach out to your people, reach out to the communities. Communities, this is how you're going to do it. Yeah. The, before, they will not come and knock your door. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love it. Um, and that's a great segue into this has been an incredible conversation. I've enjoyed talking with you both so much. And let's get into those action steps, which is kind of where you started leading us anyway, Harris. So, Chris, let's get more people hired. How do people connect with you and take advantage of um, Amplia recruiting? And do you have any pressing needs we should know about as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we we love connecting with companies and just helping them walk through the process of if it makes sense for them based on their location, based on the jobs that they have available and all the other surrounding factors, if it's a good fit for them to be focused on hiring from the refugee workforce. And so um, we, we, we love walking through that process, even if it doesn't mean direct benefit to us, helping a company navigate whether that's an appropriate path for them um, is something we're doing all day, every day. Um, our specific approach is is providing temp to perm staffing. So uh, typically people are on our payroll for usually about six months, four to six months. And, and we, we typically start a 40% markup. So those that are used to temp to perm uh, staffing providers will, will know exactly what that means. So we you know, we look and smell and act a lot like any other staffing company. It's just that our focus is specifically providing talent from the refugee workforce. So we invoice every week. We're covering all the uh, payroll and and um, all the workers comp and all of that. And then they would go permanent, um, you know, with you. And then we have a direct placement uh, option as well, you know, that, that, that people, especially if they're stepping into 
a more professional work environment, um, you know, where they would be your employee from day one and we would charge a percentage of the expected annual income. So, um, so happy to, to connect with anyone who's, who's listening and, uh, and just walk through the process of figuring out what might be the best path for them as they consider engaging refugees in their community. Um, email is probably the best way to connect with me. So that's just my first name, Chris at amplio.recruiting.com. So that's A-M-P-L-I-O recruiting.com. And I'm sure it'll be listed um, on any follow-up documents as well. So uh, feel free just to reach out and we can plan a short discussion just to see how we can, how we can help and get you better connected to this community that can have a great impact. Yeah. And we three are coming to everybody today from the beautiful Atlanta, Georgia area, but you guys work nationwide, right? Yeah, that's right. We have a, a you know strong portfolio of clients that we already serve, uh, but we can operate anywhere in the U.S. or in Canada um, as we you know have the opportunity to connect with our local you know refugee community. So we're grateful to be really central to this ecosystem around the around the country. And you know we call up guys like Harris and say, "Who do you know in this town?" And he gets us connected. And um, and so we're grateful to to have a lot of friends from all over the world that we never expected would be our friends, much less our employees. And, and just grateful we get to do what we do and come alongside some great companies in the process. Yeah, for sure. And Harris, we'll give you the last word. You've already kind of given some good advice about getting outside your comfort zone, but what are a couple actions and that may be one of them that people in their own lives outside of just recruiting or hiring or work, but talking about even just our personal lives and things like that. What, um, what are some action steps that people can take to learn more about the refugee population and support displaced individuals? Uh, the one thing I will, I will advise to all the immigrants, as soon as you can, adopt the culture where you live. And the second thing I had, a, uh, the second thing I will say that if you think what you are or what you are in the past, how successful you are in your country, if you keep thinking about that, you will not grow up in this country. Mm. You have to start from scratch again and build yourself. If your mentality still set what you are in your country, country, and you keep saying that the stories, who you are, oh, I done this, I done that, I was well-known, I was popular, these things. Yeah, definitely that will be a history, history. But you have to, you have to stop thinking about that and start, start a new life here. If you keep thinking about what you were in the past and how good life you had in the past back home, back home, they should think about this. Yeah, definitely you have a good life there but your life was not safe. When you are going out of home, you never know that you are coming back alive or no. When your kids are going to school, you don't know if they are going to back, come back alive or no. So this is the good opportunities here, the positive things here that you have to think. At the end of the day, you have to think about your family as well. Because mm -hmm. what we do in this world, for what I'm making money, for what I'm working hard, to just to present a good kid, a, a good kid and a good person, a good person to this world. So that's why you have to, again, I'm saying that come out your comfort zone and do not think what you are. 
think what you are going to be in this country. Set up a new goal for you. It doesn't mean that you can reach your goal in a couple of months. You a couple of months. If, if it's going to take you years, still you have to. You should have a goal. What you want to be, and how you going to reach it, and how you going to. Um, like uh, uh, KBI, like how you going to KBI it, how you going to manage it, when and how how you put your goals, how you are going to achieve your goals, your goals, which step you already took to achieve your goals, goals. What next step you gonna be? Your your step will be to achieve your goals. So these are the stuff that yeah. stuff I presented this through a supply chain and logistics perspective because this is how I can explain it to them. Sure. Like the good thing here is in the US is the most of these companies let the employees to set their goal, to set their goal. And then it's up to the employees how they, pro- how they will process and through reaching that goal, that goal. If you reach your goal, definitely you will get your full bonus. But if you in a half of it, you will give half bonus. So it's a good it's a good experience. Mm-hmm. Actually, even if you can use that that in your real life, you will be a successful person here. Yeah. And what about people like me and Chris and just regular Americans? How can we more learn more and embrace more um, people who come from other areas? Especially Chris and I, like we talked about, grew up in other places that this wasn't an option. We didn't know people from lots of different places. And now with a with our global world, we have that ability. So, um, you know, what would you encourage us to do? Uh, I will and especially encourage it's not because you people are already the best people i know you got you, you are a successful and uh and i thank you uh thank chris to give me this opportunity to meet with you guys and also openly speak up what i feel about it but one thing i will say that especially when a, a doctor is coming from our country through a resettlement agencies mm. And they are contacting to the job, the, the employment specialist that he needs a job. If he is a doctor, definitely he can be like a work in a medical store. Yeah. But before they talk to them and more know more about them, they offer them to work in a chicken factory. Mm-hmm. And they, lo- they lost their dignity right there. Yeah. Right there. And they lose the hope and they lost everything there. Mm-hmm. The good thing would be here is to talk, speak up with, you cannot, you, you don't, you cannot understand or know everything about a person, what is written on their resume. I mean, on their CV or resume. If we get to use with it, to talk with them more and ask them, like me personally, when I'm sitting in an interview, to be honest with you, when I'm taking some interviews, interviews, 30% of my question is from job-related related, uh, questions. 70% of my indirectly, indirectly, diplomatically, I, I put some questions in front of the candidates that I don't see the candidate, what he can do now. Mm-hmm. I see if this candidate is going to adopt more challenges in the future or not. How his mentality is safe, how he knows about the culture here, how he knows how the law works here, everything. If I feel that that opportunity on one person, if he has the experience of 30 person mm-hmm. and I see the growth, 
of 50 person that he can adopt 50 more 50 person with a little bit training training i will give him the opportunity and instead of that i say i give him a number okay out of 100 he is on 45 and the average number accepting is like 65 or 70 mm-hmm. no no i uh, before i said that all those people like me they need an opportunity an opportunity just give them an opportunity and give them an opportunity give them 3 months time and see how can he adopt it no, no one no one come to this world to learn to learn mm-hmm. who like for me i was like a kid when i joined i learn everything from every like i learn a lot of things like today i learned a lot from you i learned from chris i adopt a lot of things from you guys today so this is what what especially when i'm sitting on the table when i'm taking interviews this is how my how i do how i do everybody have their own rules procedures and definitely uh the company also have their own expectations as well but this is what i feel if what i say if the companies just do a little a little turnover to left and right side they will get the best employees they ever they ever think from the refugee communities yeah, I yeah, absolutely agree with you. I would sum it up by saying um, more conversations lead to um, less assumptions, which is what we all need to do. Less of assuming about each other or a different culture, a different community, anything like that, and just open up more conversations like this one, which has been incredible. Thank you both for your time, for your experience, for your expertise. Um, I'm excited to get this out in the world and have more people learn about the both of you and about Amplio and um, yeah, let's, the supply chain world needs lots of good people working in it, especially right now. So let's get more of those people hired and thank you again, both for your time. Um, this is another amazing episode of logistics with purpose, and we hope you'll join us next time. And thank you, Harris. Thank you, Chris, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Christy. Thank, thank you. you.